Hello and welcome to this Isaacos webinar series presentation on new insights in multiligamentous ankle injuries. My name is Gianluigi Canata, and it is my pleasure to serve as a co-chair of today's program, which has been designed by the Isaacos Leg, Ankle and Foot Committee. We are delighted to be partnering with ESCA on this webinar. Ankle ligament injuries deserve a careful evaluation. Combined lesions need an even more specific management. And uh, we have uh, here today a great panel and we uh, would like to introduce you to our distinguished faculty who will join us in the presentations and discussion. From Isaacos, we have Kenneth Hunt from the United States. He will present on the lateral and subtalar injuries. Nazef Mohamed Abdelatif from Egypt will present on associated lesions. Nick Van Dyke from Netherlands is, he is our great Gizakos editor. He will present his perspectives on this topic. Stéphane Guillaume from France will join us in the discussion. From ESCA, uh, uh, Daniel Averkamp, uh, my co-chair, will introduce the ESCA faculty. Thank you. Uh, well, from ESCA, we're really delighted to uh, host share this uh, webinar with Isakos um, on this uh, important topic. Um, indeed, um, ankle instability will never stop to entertain us. It's a hot topic, a lot of changes over the years and a lot of things we still have to discuss about. I think a webinar like this uh, is excellent uh, to join forces. Uh, from our side, we have um, Anthony Pereira, uh, who will uh, talk about lateral and syndesmosis injuries. He is a well-known uh, fellowship-trained foot and ankle surgeon um, from the University of Hospital uh, of Wales in Cardiff. Uh, we've seen him on many presentations and uh, did a lot of research on this topic. So happy to hear his presentation. Um, from our board, we have uh, Jordi Feca who is uh, from Barcelona, University of Barcelona. I think uh, most of you know Jordi Vega, did a lot of research on ankle instability, is one of our AFAS, ESCA AFAS board members and um, also a board member of MIFAS and really active within the AFAS. So involved in the foot and ankle world. Um, then the few from the editors, uh, John Carlson, uh, will uh, shed his light on things. And uh, looking back in his history, he did his PhD on uh, chronic uh, lateral ankle instability in 89. I was 13 back in that days. Uh, and since then he published more than uh, six, 700 papers, more than 100 book chapters, uh, is our uh, current uh, Kesta uh, chief editor. So a lot of knowledge there, so looking forward to the discussion. And from our ARFAS board, Pietro Spinaccio, who is a foot and ankle specialist, uh, an Italian, but works in Luxembourg, um, who will uh, uh, join the discussion uh, afterwards. So really happy to uh, listen to this webinar. So I'll turn off my camera and enjoy. 
And we'll start with the presentation of uh, Anthony Pereira. So there isn't a lot published on this, and this is um, very much a current concept. So what I really want to do is to get people thinking about the possibility of combined injuries and start looking for this. We need to go back to the beginning um, when um, ankle ligaments really just considered to be lateral ligament injuries. Even when there was medial bruising, and perhaps we're still guilty of this, that we primarily focus on the lateral side, even when there is medial bruising present. But of course, there are other causes of lateral bruising, fifth metatarsal, perineal dislocation, and, and they're quite obvious, but are easily missed. Syndesmosis injuries can be more subtle. Uh, but then other things such as Achilles tendons and Lisfranc ligament injuries will also get missed um, when patients present with lateral ligament problems. So we really got to think about all the ligaments that, be, that can pos possibly be involved here. But we like simplicity. And so we tend to think of just three sets of injuries, lateral ligament primarily, deltoid ligament and syndesmosis. And we like to think of them as separate injuries. And we're told that we can do this because there are different mechanisms of injury. So an eversion injury will cause a deltoid disruption, an inversion injury, a lateral ligament, and a dorsiflexion external rotation injury, a syndesmosis. But I want to look at this because combined injuries do occur. Um, this set of x-rays was given to me by a, a colleague, Christelle Charpe, who works in Bordeaux with Stéphane Guillot, who's on the panel, and it's a combined syndesmosis and lateral ligament. And on the right is uh, a patient that um, um, I've seen who um, has just sent me this video actually in the last week or two, who had a combined injury and has had it reconstructed. So they can't be ignored. But if you look at the literature, we still hear that lateral injuries are caused by plantar flexion inversion and syndesmosis injuries by dorsiflexion external rotation. So how could you get a combined injury if there are such different mechanisms um, that uh, occur? This really is the perceived wisdom. And, and if you take social media, that there are plenty of um, sites that look at um, sports people and very much uh, pigeonhole uh, plant flexion inversion injury to be in a lateral ligament and a um, external rotation as being a deltoid or high syndesmosis injury. And where has this all come from? Well, the first paper I can find is by Lars Brostrom. Not this guy, he played football for Sweden, but I couldn't actually find a picture of Lars Brostrom himself. Um, and he did a study back in the 60s that looked at where the ATFL was under its greatest stretch. And that was, he found, in inversion and plantar flexion. But this is a cadaver study done in a lab. However, these studies have been repeated and um, this position was found to be the greatest um, strain on the ATFL. But interestingly, the CFL started to emerge as being more tense in dorsiflexion and inversion. So we're already starting to see some divergence. There have been plenty of clinical studies that have looked at um, isolated syndesmosis injuries. Again, these have tended to be laboratory cadaver studies, and they've always all picked out on ankle dorsiflexion and external rotation as being cause of an isolated syndesmosis injury. And then finally, deltoid ligaments. There hasn't been so much work done on isolated deltoid ligament injury, but very much the perceived wisdom is that this is an eversion 
or um, external rotation type injury. There have been lab studies done on the individual parts of the deltoid, and we understand that they're tense at different points, but essentially we think it's an eversion external rotation injury. But life isn't that simple. Here is a, a player who's had an external rotation injury, but he's had another player fall on top of him. So this isn't something that's been reproduced in the lab. So it, it, it leads us to believe that combined injuries must be feasible. When we've looked at combined lateral and medial ligament injuries, things start to get a bit confused. Either this is a more severe inversion force, or this is potentially some other kind of injury. Um, the study from Korea looked at soccer players and found that deltoid ligament injuries with lateral injuries were very much to do with um, external rotation type injuries. So maybe we're actually looking at lots of different um, injuries that are all being artificially grouped together. The latest way of studying this is to look at um, video analysis. And this group actually happened to be doing some video analysis, as you can see, when um, a, one of the study subjects sustained an injury. And it was very interesting because they started to notice that dorsiflexion and external rotation are relevant. There are plenty of studies looking at this in other sports, in tennis and in basketball, Olympics, where we see either um, a pure inversion without any plant flexion or um, inversion with dorsiflexion or inversion and external rotation or um, external rotation and dorsiflexion. So we certainly start to get the idea that this is a lot of different injuries that we're artificially grouping together. When you look at clinical studies, we see that in every study that, that, that's been done, that there is an association of lateral ligament and syndesmosis injuries. And as, as I said before, these injuries become more complex once you start adding other people into the, um, into the mix so that you get different forces to what we're seeing in, in the laboratory. However, studies still seem to suggest that the only other associated injury with syndesmosis is the deltoid ligament. This um, paper looked at 34 patients. They found two patients who had coexisting lateral ligament and syndesmosis. Um, this is another paper that showed that there was a 20% association. So it seems the more you look, the more you will find. Um, and that it's perhaps that the syndesmosis injury occurs at the end of a really severe lateral ligament sprain. Um, one important point as well is the effect of the Achilles ten uh, tendon. When we're weight-bearing, the locked position of the Achilles tendon really makes the ankle much tighter. And again, it's something that we don't um, allow for in cadaver studies. Now, the reason this is relevant is that the one study that's looked at this from James Calder uh, and Graham McCollum actually suggested that a coexistent ATFL ligament injury may be um, protective of a um, more unstable type injury. That's difficult to understand, and they were unable to really kind of um, uh, find a reason from their analysis of this. But we know coexisting injuries do lead to poor outcomes, and that um, the existence of a missed ATFL ligament injury can result in poor outcomes from a syndesmosis, and that 
coexisting syndesmosis injuries can lead to a poorer outcome from lateral ligament injuries. The reason this is all really changing is the role of arthroscopy. As more and more of us are doing our um, uh, lateral ligament and syndesmosis reconstructions arthroscopically, we're starting to see patients who have coexisting injuries because this really is the gold standard of how to assess this. Um, Amazingly, last week, I did a, um, a lateral ligament reconstruction and had just exactly one of these patients with a coexisting syndesmosis injury that had not been picked up from his um, preoperative MRI scan. But he was a professional soccer player with a severe acute lateral ligament injury. So in the absence of any real um, clinical studies on this, what I want to really ask everyone to do is to start thinking about the fact that it is really unsurprising that combined injuries occur. The mechanism of injury can be very helpful. And um, in professional sports, people were very lucky they come in with the injury mechanism videos, but it's incumbent upon us to examine each patient and always consider the possibility. And it is very important that arthroscopy has got a vital role in this decision-making. Thank you. Outstanding. Thank you, Gianluigi. Um, yeah, good day, everybody. I want to make sure you can hear me okay, John. Can you just confirm? We can hear you. Wonderful. Well, what an honor to be here. And um, and uh, that's a tough act to follow, Anthony. It was a terrific, uh, terrific presentation. I think it set the table really well. So uh, great to be a part of this and great to, to focus on multi-ligament ankle injuries because it's something we're seeing more and more and um, developing more and more uh, approaches. So I'm gonna really focus on ankle and subtalar joint injuries. So this is the classic inversion ankle sprain. So it doesn't include external rotation uh, or necessarily medial ankle injuries. And the, the ligaments tend to it, be injured in that order. It's ATFL, CFL, and, and the really high-grade inversion injuries, the PTFL can be injured as well. Now, there's an important distinction here we all know that that this is the most common injury in sport, particularly field and court sports. Um, it's a good chunk of, of injuries that we see in in uh, in the major uh, field and court sports. There's a biomechanical um, consideration here, and that is that the the anterior part of the talus is wider than the posterior part of the talus. So when the ankle is dorsiflexed, it's relatively stable, and when it's plantar flexed, it's relatively less stable. That's why these injuries tend to occur in plantar flexion. However, in dorsiflexion, the CFL is on its greatest tension. So that's the position where the CFL is at higher risk, uh, whereas in plantar flexion is typically the ATFL, at least the ATFL first. Now, it's rare that we see CFL injuries in isolation, but we do see it. So again, plantar flexion inversion is the most common. The ankle is at greatest risk. The talus is exposed at its most narrow part. But in that neutral or dorsiflex position, the CFL is on relative tension and is at risk for injury. So now I'm going to focus on how I incorporate the, the CFL and the subtalar joint into my consideration for, for lateral ankle ligament injuries. It can be difficult on an exam to, to see that um, uh, with, without live flora, and I'll show you what I mean. So th this is my algorithm. So my, my gold standard is still an open brochure repair, particularly if I need to repair the CFL, which I typically do. Um, I'll do an arthroscopic brostrum if, this, if there's no subtalar instability, and then, then some additional techniques that I'll discuss. So we're all familiar with the brostrum and Gould's modification. Uh, Anthony covered that very nicely. So on the table, this is what I'll always do. I'll do a medial translation test. So we know it's going to open up at the ankle, 
What I'm curious about is does it widen at the subtalar joint? So this is a medial translation test that you can see clinically, but it's important to see radiographically as well. Um, if that opens up, if the if the calcaneus slides, I'm going to repair the CFL and the capsular structures on the outside. So this is my open brostrum approach. I use uh, an anchor. Uh, I pull that ligament uh, directly against the bone and then repair the extensor retinaculum. This is my approach to the CFL. You can see it's a thickening of the capsule. And so I will just tighten that up with some box stitches. Um, you know, the goal is to kind of get that to scar in. Now, this is before the repair, again, that medial translation, and then immediately after the repair, it's really stable. Even just with a suture repair, there's really good stability, uh, and I'll confirm that on fluoroscopy as well. Um, now, I'll, I'll use arthroscopy in the vast majority of these. Typically, there's going to be synovitis, sometimes loose fragments, cartilage injury. So I can look at the CFL, and if the CFL is intact, combined with no widening or medializing of the calcaneus on stress test, uh, then I'll proceed and, and do an arthroscopic repair. We studied this. This was an Issacos-funded grant that uh, that uh, our leg-ankle-foot committee did uh, several years back. Uh, we compared ATFL alone versus ATFL and CFL, and that we found when you add the CFL repair, you have better, greater stiffness. It reduces that medial translation moment, and there's higher failure torque. So there's a mechanical advantage to repairing the CFL. Now, arthro arthroscopic brostrum, is, as Anthony said, this is you know gaining popularity. We're getting better at this. We're figuring out the techniques. And indeed, you can see that bone real easily. You can prepare the bone. Uh, you can place your anchors, uh, advance those anchors through the ATFL ligament, through the extensor retinaculum, um, and, and get, uh, get a very nice repair. Now, again, the limitation is you can't really repair the CFL well. Um, through this technique. Now, you could argue that by incorporating the extensor retinaculum, you don't need to, since that goes uh, across the subtalar joint and therefore relatively stabilizes it. Uh, but I'll talk in a moment uh, why I um, don't necessarily ascribe to them. So this is the, 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 the typical technique here. I'm going to fast forward through this. So I'll grab those sutures um, and, uh, and, and I'll do a, a direct repair under arthroscopy. Um, again, the stability is excellent. This is a wonderful technique. Um, it's uh, it's solid. It's less invasive. It causes less swelling. So it's my preference when I don't have to go after the CFL. There's good data to support it. Let me rephrase that. There's okay data to support it. I, I still think we need better, better controlled uh, outcome studies. But when the two techniques are compared, they're at minimal equivalent. Uh, and Wu and his colleagues uh, showed that the arthroscopic technique is actually better uh, with higher functional scores, less pain. Uh, and, and no complications in either group. Um, now, what's interesting is this more recent uh, review looked at reconstructing the ATFL and CFL versus the ATFL alone, and they found that the, out the clinical outcomes were similar. The only difference was that the ATFL only group had a greater Taylor tilt angle instability. So there was still that subtalar joint instability when the CFL is not repaired. Um, so all this sort of points to the value, at least, of repairing the CFL. Now, of interest, uh, many on this call uh, who are part of the AIG group um, conducted a study where we asked our colleagues, do you repair the CFL? 87% of respondents said that they do under some circumstances. Now, it may be dependent on subtalar instability, maybe all the time. It may depend on the quality of the tissue. But the vast majority of us do repair the CFL as part of our uh, as part of our armamentarium. So when do you need to, to do something more? So for me, if there's poor tissue quality, if they have that Ehlers-Danlos spectrum, 
uh, tissue laxity, if they've got a subtle hindfoot varus. And in most revision cases, I, I like to add some tissue because I just don't think you can count on what's there. It's often very scarred <clears throat> and relatively thin. And so I, I like suture tape augmentation. This can be done to reconstruct just the ATFL. Uh, you, um, and this is kind of what it looks like. Uh, so I'll do a standard brostrum, and then I'll put the uh, the the um, suture tape uh, into the talus first, cross the ATFL, and put it into the fibula. So this is a supplement essentially uh, for the ATFL repair. Um, it won't stretch out because it's anchored into the bone, so you can rehab uh, a, a little bit more uh, a little bit more rapidly. Now. I would always repair the CFL in this situation as well, but you can also do a split with uh, with the, this uh, this suture tape material where you place it into the fibula, run one limb into the talus, and run one limb into the calcaneus. So you're essentially reconstructing uh, both ligaments. Um, when do I include allograft? Again, this is when when there's there's poor tissue quality, when there's a lot of laxity, when there's a lot of varus. Um, there are lots of different techniques that have been described. Some of them are more invasive. Some of them are, rely on a little bit more tendon material. I've kind of gone to this anti-roll technique. Uh, you know, many of our colleagues from a lot across the country have um, uh, have written about this and, and published on it. So it's a straightforward technique and it allows you to reconstruct both ligaments. So I'll, I'll split the graft, place it into the fibula first, run one limb into the talus, uh, the other limb I'll put down uh, into the calcaneus. So I'm reconstructing both ligaments. Um, and then you can use some of that excess for added collagen if you need it. Um, now, um, I've gone to when there's when there's major concern or really just if I want to make sure I have enough, um, in addition to that anti-roll, I will add that suture tape material. It just makes me feel a little bit better that it's not going to stretch out. Sometimes patients with tissue laxity will um, remodel their tissues into a, a relatively lax structure. So I like the addition of that, particularly in my in my revision cases. Um, so there, are, there is an arthroscopic anatomic reconstruction that's been described. Stefan Guillaume, um, our French colleagues and, and others across Europe um, have really popularized this. Uh, really nice technique, same principles as the open approach. There's just less swelling. Um, there's obviously a learning curve. Um, the outcomes are good. You know, the higher AOFAS scores, higher Carlson scores. Uh, my concern is always that complication rate. You know, 10% nerve injury rate is what sort of makes me reticent until I can sort of perfect that in the lab. Uh, I'll, I'll continue to open. Uh, I also often will see perineal tendon pathology that can be addressed with the open technique uh, more readily than than the uh, than the uh, endoscopic or minimally invasive technique. So, just briefly on rehab and return to sport. So, it's interesting. You know, we look back at at 30, 40 years of outcomes, and the average return to sport is is 4.7 months. And I think all of us on the call would say that's a long time to come back from an ankle ligament injury. I would say the over-under these days is closer to three months, depending obviously on sport, athlete alignment, uh, et cetera. Um, but how we decide on return to sport is really a bit of an enigma. There's no common criteria currently. There are a number of different tests that our PTs will do. There's not like a, a general battery of tests that can say this athlete's ready to go back to the field. Um, there's also a psychological readiness uh, component here as well. So there are some surveys that have been introduced to ankle that have been widely used for ACL that I think will be helpful to determine when an athlete is ready mentally uh, to go out and test their ankle following a reconstruction. But really more to come on that. Um, I think we're at the in the infant stages of better defining return to sport 
and and making sure this is a part of our literature. But in general, return to sport is when an athlete can master their sport-specific drills. They have their strength, balance, and proprioception, and they have a psychological readiness to to really expose and test their ankle. And so those three components really have to be there. And and there's no specific timeline. There's no um, you know, there's there's no uh, a well-defined timeline because it varies so much by sport and by athlete. And that's really a need to to have definable metrics to help guide progression. So in summary, uh, lateral ankle stability is very common. Uh, the surgical outcomes are good and improving. The techniques are getting better. We still need to better define how we return to turn to sport. Um, but uh, but we uh, are well able to address these ATFL and CFL subtalar joint combined injuries. And that's it. I'll hand it over to our esteemed chairs. Hi, my name is Jordi Vega from Barcelona, Spain. And this is a great honor to participate in this webinar, Isacos Esca. I will talk about injuries involving lateral and medial ankle ligaments. As you know, ankle uh, instability is not a minor problem. It should be considered as a global ankle problem and not just as a one ligament disorder. In general population symptomatic ankle instability, more than 90% of the patients, they have just an anterior talofibular ligament superior fascicle injury. And the rest, which is less than 10% of the patients, they have an injury of the lateral fibrotalocalcanal ligament complex, which is the anterior talofibular ligament inferior fascicle plus the calcanofibular ligament and its connecting fibers. This anterior talofibular ligament superior fascicle is an interarticular ligament. And when injured, this superior fascicle of anterior talofibular ligament, the patient will develop a minor ankle instability, which is a micro-instability of the ankle. When symptoms, the patient, they refer anterolateral pain and instability feeling and recurring ankle sprains. From an anatomical point of view, this superior fascicle of anterior talofibular ligament works separate from the inferior fascicle. It is an intraticular ligament, as I said you before, and it is relaxed in dorsoflexion and tight in plantar flexion. As an intraticular structure, it will never heal when injured. In contrast, you have the inferior fascicle that works together the calcanofibular ligament, and this is that we call the lateral fibrotalocalcanal ligament complex. This ligament complex is an extraticular uh, structure and because of these connecting fibers that transmit the tension between one of the ligaments to the other, this structure is always tight. So we did this uh, biomechanical study uh, uh, about the, the anterior talofibular ligament superior and inferior fascicles. We did this study in London with uh, Dr. Calder and together with uh, my colleague, uh, Miki Dalmau, which is an anatomist, and we observe that the superior uh, fascicle of the anterior talofibular ligament mainly controls the internal rotation of the talus, while its inferior fascicle controls the anterior talus translation. So when you have a deficit of this superior fascicle, there is an increased internal talar rotation. And as the consequence, the patient has a stress on this anterior part of the deltoid. And then the patient will separate the deltoid 
from the bone in this old anterior part of the of the deltoid ligament and then you can observe this image when uh, you scope the ankle which is named the open book injury of the deltoid ligament so this anterior part of the deltoid mainly controls the talar external rotation so then as a consequence of this uh, injury secondary injury of the deltoid the patient will have an abnormal increase talar rotation so the patient will have an increase in internal talar rotation as the consequence of the lateral side and an increase of external talar rotation as a consequence of the deltoid ligament injury when uh, patients they have symptoms they have a medial ankle complaints in addition to the lateral ankle instability symptoms so this rotational ankle instability is observed in about 15% of patients with chronic ankle instability or micro instability. Here, one important point is that one fourth of the patients with rotational ankle instability, they have not medial symptoms. So you have to pay attention with chronic ankle instability and the option to have a rotational ankle instability. The most common problem is that the patient has a moderate ankle sprain as a result, the patient has an injury of the anterior talofibular ligament superior fascicle and uh, in consequence, the patient develops an ankle microinstability. So because of this ankle microinstability, there is an internal talar rotation, an increase in internal talar rotation, and then there is this uh, stress on the, of the anterior deltoid, and then develop, the patient develops a tear of this anterior deltoid ligament, this open book injury, and the patient develops this rotational ankle instability. So how to diagnose the patient with rotational ankle instability? The history of uh, recurrent ankle sprain, it is important. And the clinical symptoms, usually patients, they have anterolateral pain, and usually they have anteromedial pain, and this instability feeling, or a, a really instability. Here it is important to know that uh, this uh, rotational ankle instability is a mechanical instability. So patients cut the blob in traticular injuries uh, and then some of the patients, they can come to the consultation because of these secondary problems and not the origin of the patient symptoms, which is the ligament injury. When you explore these patients, one of the, the maneuvers that I use in my consultation is this uh, tibiotalo posterior driver test with a slight foot internal rotation. In this position, you uh, isolate the anterior talofibular ligament superior fascicle. And then when you do the posterior driver test, you can observe when you compare with the contralateral side that there is an increased uh, uh, translation, posterior translation of the uh, fibula. Another maneuver that you have to check with these patients is this ankle pivot test is to increase uh, uh, the rotation especially the external rotation and compare this external rotation with the contralateral side but again when you have this anterior uh, delta ligament injury this anterior part of the deltoid also controls the anterior talus translation so it is quite common that patients with rotational instability they have an anterior driver test. So pay attention with patients with anterior driver tests because 
some of them, they will have a migraine stability and an open book deltoid injury. For uh, imaging studies, MRI, ultrasonography, they are the most common uh, imaging studies that they use in my consultation. The problem of MRI is that sometimes it's not easy to observe the injury of the ligaments uh, for the lateral and, and for the medial. If you have the big chance so, to have a, a, a liquid inside the joint, you can observe how the liquid uh, goes to the injury of the anterior telofibular ligament superior fascicle that you can observe here, indicated with the arrow. And for the medial side, uh, you can observe how the liquid can go between the ligament and the bone, as you can see here, indicated also with the arrow. For the old sonography, it is quite helpful for the lateral side. Then you can check here, this is a superior fascicle, and then with maneuvers, you can observe how it's moving and how uh, a gap appears between the fibula and, uh, and the ligament. But for the medial side, it's not so helpful. Finally, most of the patients, you have uh, clinical diagnosis, but you have not imaging diagnosis, and uh, finally you, uh, go for scope the ankle just to observe these injuries. It is important to recognize normality, uh, always to use uh, dorsiflexion and no distraction technique. In the lateral side, you can observe different types of injury of the anterior telofibular ligament superior fascicle. Of course, if you observe the perineal tendons at the end of the lateral gutter, it means that you have a uh, lateral fibrotelocalcanal ligament complex term. For the medial side, always go to explore the medial side just to observe this uh, open book injury. Next, when you have the diagnosis, how to treat these patients. Of course, you have conservative treatment. Uh, but I will recommend to the patients to, uh, to have a surgery to repair the ligaments. As you can observe, all the ligaments can be observed when you scope. So if you observe the ligaments, you observe the injury, why not to repair through an all-inside technique? For the lateral side, I use the all-inside technique that I described about 10 years ago. This video, you can download this video in GVGS Essential Surgical Techniques. And it's a quite, quite simple technique. And then you can repair through this technique, the lateral side. For the medial, you can grasp the anterior part of the ligament with this automatic uh, pseudopasser. And then close this open book injury with an anchor another anchor. So for the post-op, this is the, the, the common post-op that they use with these patients. And to take home, rotational instability is an abnormal increase of talar rotation within the tibia fibula amortis, secondary to a lateral ankle instability. The presence of this open book injury of the deltoid ligament, of the most anterior part of the deltoid ligament, uh, is a characteristic of rotational ankle instability. Pay attention when treating chronic ankle instability or micro-instability because around 15% of, uh, of the patients, they will have a rotational ankle instability. They will have an open book injury.
and for the treatment, the all inside repair of both lateral and medial, it is the recommended technique uh, and uh, because you can treat both uh, through the same portals. Thank you for your attention. Okay, thank you very much. Of course, it's it's uh, wonderful and uh, it's a huge uh, honor to be here. I, I mean, a lot of good friends and even mentors. Um, Nick Van Dyke, who I'm very fortunate to be here with, with us. Um, I spent some time with him, but this was like 23 years ago now. So uh, it's a great honor for me. So we've heard a lot of tremendous talks and um, I'm supposed to talk about other associated lesions we might find with ankle uh, multiligamentous injuries. Um, it's not moving. Okay. So I am Nasif Mohammed Nasif. Uh, I'm a professor of orthopedic foot and ankle reconstructive surgery from Cairo, Egypt. Uh, these are my disclosures, and uh, they do not have any um, relevance to this particular talk. So we've already heard about syndesmotic lesions, subtalar instability, and even deltoid associations. So what more might there be? Is there anything else? When I was giving this uh, topic, and uh, really it's, it's an amazing topic, I thought maybe we can talk about fractures. And of course, Anthony has covered some part of that. Um, osteochondral lesions, which might occur in combination with ankle multiligamentous injuries, osteophytes, we see these also a lot, and also osteoarthritis. Now, the challenge is to do that in 10 minutes, and I promise I'll try to keep to my time. Now, let's start off straight away with ankle fractures. If you, if you do a PubMed search and you only look for ankle fractures with multiligamentous injuries, you're probably going to come only with a couple of, of, of um, studies. And if you look at the main study, which actually called, which was actually titled the multiligamentous ankle fracture, they looked at open fractures, unstable open fractures. But what's very interesting to note is that 20%, a fifth of them, will have an additional multiligamentous injury apart from the bony fracture. Well, it might probably be true if you're looking at open fractures, but what about other fractures? So this was a, um, a patient of mine, I think this was in 2016. It looked like a normal supination external rotation. Of course, these are non-weight-bearing x-rays. Yeah, we, we asked for the um, um, comparative weight-bearing x-rays. You might think there's a syndesmotic injury. You might think there's a deltoid injury. Are these sure signs? And even if you have these sure signs, how can you detect stability? Are they stable? Because we do know that an injury is not necessary in instability. And so, of course, the gold standard, more or less, now is the ankle um, scope. This particular patient we did scope, that's the syndesmosis and that's the deltoid. And as Jordi's Vega, Vega's um, um, uh, uh, scopes are always much better looking than mine, but if you can make it out, this was a fracture case, the deltoid is off-ended off the mediomarius there. So we knew that, we fixed it, we tried to take the fibula out to length. This is mandatory, of course, it is a fracture and you have to restore that rotation and length. We put in a syndesmotic screw to hold the syndesmosis, but we had seen the deltoid, we had seen the injury. And so we decided we need to um, fix that, which we did in this case with suture anchors. And um, we felt pretty stable afterwards. And so these were his, um, I think these were three years post-operative x-rays and he was doing fine. He returned back to um, soccer. This is another case just to illustrate this example. So it's a simple high fibular fracture. Obviously it looks like there's a deltoid there, even if it's a non-weight bearing x-ray, but you can see even after fixing the syndesmosis, it was not uh, enough to 
um, stop the deltoid um, um, rotation, if you will, or the, or the tilt or the translation. Now, this is not mine, this other uh, case. This was sent to me from South America and uh, from a friend of mine. As you can see, after fixation, it looked like a, also a high fibular fracture. And they, you can see the um, scope um, was put in and they, they decided they needed to fix these syndesmoses, which they did. And obviously they thought, well, there is still a deltoid. They sculpted, it, they fixed the deltoid, but look at that. There's a lateral Taylor tilt. There's a lateral ligament injury. You can argue maybe the patient had a, a CAI, a chronic ankle instability before. Maybe that was the cause of the fracture, but you have to look for it to know and you have to fix it if you find it. And so quickly moving on, if we try to go on to um, osteochondral lesions, we do know that one in three patients with a, a chronic lateral, not a multiligamentous, will, will have a cartilage lesion. So that's a significant amount of patients. And if you compare those that have chronic lateral instability with those that don't, in regards to osteochondral lesions, you'll find that most of these patients have are, are prone to have larger osteochondral lesions and they will have lesser AOFAS or lesser outcome scores uh, if they are in combination with instability. And that's when you're only looking at perhaps at one ligament or at least the lateral subset of ligaments. And so even with fractures, you find that the prevalence of osteochondral lesions with rotational type of fractures and syndesmotic injuries are almost 15%. And these also tend to have a higher burnt and hearty um, um, classification, and they would probably have been addressed better off in the index procedure. And so if you look, there's also a paper that came out that shows that in a randomized perspective study, patients who have a combination of OCLs with chronic lateral ankle instability, they will probably be better off if you treat them at the same stage, so at a single stage, as opposed to doing the lateral instability and then going back and doing the OCL or vice versa. And of course, if we just talk about the evaluation and management of osteochondral lesions, we, we need a whole new webinar. So we'll keep that, I think, for the discussion. So we move on to ankle osteophytes. And osteophytes at the beginning were taught, taught to us as traction spurs. And then we found that they're not actually at the site of the capsule attachment. So they should not be called traction spurs. Now, maybe the uh, pathogenesis behind that is the microtrauma, microtrauma, microinstability, maybe the instability of the ligaments, and that would heal and cause these spur formations. And possibly like Jordi just shown, on the lateral side, you might have the microinstability as the cause for that, that might result in ligamentous or attraction spur formation. I'll just show you two cases of mine by comparison. This was one of my very early cases. This was maybe uh, 20 years ago. And this was a patient, you can argue, look, there's an anterior osteophyte there, but there's also something going on posterior. This patient was completely less posteriorly. And that was his osteophyte, as you could see there. So I decided at that time, I didn't look for microinstability. I have to be honest. I didn't look for instability. I didn't feel the patient had. And I decided to just go ahead and remove the osteophyte. The patient at least did not complain later on. And he was an indoor football player. And he said he returned back. I did follow him up for at least three or four years. And he was fine. But was I right? Did I miss something? Now, fast forward now to maybe 20 years again, and this patient, there's, there's his osteophyte. He had no ankle osteoarthritis, as you can see, pristine cartilage there. There was only two histories, uh, two ankle sprains. But because I wanted to look for the microinstability clinically and by the scope, I looked at the ATFL and I thought, that's not sitting right. That hammock is not really there. And as you can see, it's off-ended off the um, um, 
the fibula. And of course, we went ahead and treated the microinstability. So is this right? Was the previous patient undertreated? We'll leave that also to the discussion. So quickly moving on to ankle osteoarthrosis. Now, this is another patient. I just saw him maybe this month in my clinic. He's 63 years old. He had one ankle sprain only at 30 years of age. So it's 30 something years now. And ever since he's been having one or two episodes of instability. And you can see this is his ankle x-rays with the various um, tilting. And he also has now developed a medial instability. Actually, that's the site of his pain now and posteriority. So is it the osteoarthritis? Is it the instability? Are these the osteoarthrosis we would expect to occur after 30 years of instability? He hasn't had any type of treatment for that. And so we know that instability will cause an osteoarthritis. We do know that there's even the term, the ligamentous post-traumatic osteoarthrosis. And this probably occurs as a result of a chronic ankle instability, maybe a more severe type of ligamentous laxity than just a simple um, ATFL. And in laboratory tests, we have seen that ligamentous injury-induced ankle instability, the more higher the instability, the more osteoarthritic you can get. And this has been shown in some mice. Um, um, species. There are now people that are looking at what they call the SALE, the SALI studies, the SALI cohort and the, uh, study protocols. These are significant, what they're terming now significant ankle ligament injuries, because they think that our knowledge is still limited, even though it is the most common injury, the ankle sprain. But it is not such a benign injury. And as we do know from our clinics and from the patients that we are seeing, that there are still a residual number of patients that would still have symptoms months and years after their injury. And so there is still thing, uh, things to be done and there is still studies to be um, undertaken. And so maybe in the end, um, I think in conclusion, if we're looking at ankle fractures like Anthony said and like most of the other um, uh, eminent speakers did, I think we still need to look for the ankle ligament injuries. We need to look beyond the bone, not just the bone. We look if there are any ankle ligamentous injuries, and if they're there, you treat them accordingly. Osteochondral lesions are common findings with ankle ligamentous instabilities. We found that. And maybe you can think about single-stage treatment. Ankle osteophytes, they might in themselves indicate a frank instability or perhaps even a micro-instability. You also need to look beyond the bone in these cases. Ankle osteoarthritis is perhaps an inevitable end stage of untreated ankle ligamentous injuries, but it would be more prudent to treat the instability first than wait for the arthritis. So thank you very much. Thank you, Nazef. Now we move to the editor's voice. And it is with a great pleasure that we have with us Jon Carlson and Nick Van Dyke, editors of the two greatest sports pharmacology journals. So, Jon, I see you are the first to, to talk. Please. Uh, uh, thank you, Dr. Kanada. Actually, I would like to uh, change it. So as we decided before that Nick would start and then I will follow. Is that okay? Nick. Okay, John. Well, um, these were really, really four nice uh, presentations with a lot of information. And uh, the idea was that I would try to come up with a sort of summary and my observations and it is really on 
on each topic uh, we could uh, discuss for 10, 15, 20 minutes. So um, I will try, I'll do my best in five minutes to um, highlight some points. Um, and, and first to uh, um, uh, Anthony Pereira, the combined synosmotic and ligament, uh, lateral ligament ruptures. Um, I think the clinical relevance of um, uh, what you were saying uh, is that you have to be aware that um, there are these combined lesions, combined lateral and medial um, uh, lesions. Um, and of course, you make uh, uh, an MRI in case of doubt um, to disclose if you have combined uh, lateral and, 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 and medial so deltoid ligament lesions. Um, for the combined lateral ligament and syndesmotic rupture, um, my thesis was on, on 122 consecutive patients with a lateral ligament ruptures. rupture. I operated them and in four of them, they had a partial AITFL um, uh, rupture. So the, the anterior syndesmotic, um, uh, only a partial rupture. But 40% of those 122 patients had pain on palpation over the syndesmosis. So if you have a lateral ligament rupture, that is my message. If you have a lateral ligament rupture, the chance that you will have a relevant uh, rupture of the syndesmotic ligament is very low. And the key to a relevant uh, rupture of the, of the syndesmotic ligament is a rupture of the deltoid ligament. Because if the deltoid ligament is ruptured also, then you have an unstable syndesmosis and that needs um, surgical repair. To the presentation of Kenneth, um, subtalar instability. Um, what is important, and that's what I learned from John Carlson, um, if you have a long-standing, um, uh, a patient with a long-standing history of, of giving way, instability, then you will almost always have also laxity of the CFL. ATFL is the most important stabilizer. Um, we could argue, and if you look at the literature, uh, repair of the ATFL is enough. Um, but intuitively, if you have laxity of both ligaments, you want to uh, repair both ligaments. And, and, and that's what uh, I believe you should do. ATFL and CFL, it's one ligament. So if you have a longstanding uh, laxity, um, I believe you should also, if possible, uh, repair ATFL and CFL. Although, if you look in the literature, ATFL repair is um, uh, uh, apparently uh, enough. Uh, to Jordi's uh, presentation, um, um, we already know for, for 20, for 30 years that if you have a rupture of the ATFL, you have a rotational um, instability. The ATFL is the um, uh, ACL of the ankle joint. So you have a rotational instability uh, and it rotates over the intact deltoid ligament. So the question then is, if you have uh, an isolated um, 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 uh, superior fascicle uh, rupture, um, is it, do we have to treat an isolated rupture of the, um, uh, of the, the superior fascicle? Um, and that's a concept. That's a concept of micro-instability. We have no diagnosis, uh, no means of diagnosing. Uh, so we have to be careful um, stating that we have to repair 
uh, do a ligament repair when we have uh, rotational instability due to the superior vesicle uh, rupture. And when I then jump to uh, Nasef's um, um, uh, presentation, when he was talking about osteophytes, what you will find is that those patients with an isolated superior vesicle rupture, they will get maybe the uh, detachment of the deltoid ligament, as Jordi was saying, but moreover, they will develop osteophytes. And the osteophytes on the medial side will then stabilize the ankle joint by itself. And, and um, if you look at cadaver studies, 20% uh, of cadavers between 20 and 40 have osteophytes. So osteophytes in itself is a good thing in the ankle. The unlikely uh, patient that gets uh, impingement uh, due to the osteophytes, it is maybe 0.1% that gets um, uh, pain over these osteophytes. So um, the concept is, is interesting, um, but we have to be aware of repairing all those rotational instabilities. And, and in Jordi's series, he operated, um, he had in his um, um, uh, soft tissue impingement, so patient on the lateral side, um, then micro instability, um, but he only repaired or he only um, operated the impingement and then in 20% of his patients, that's what Jordi told me last time in, in, the, in the presentation, one of his presentations, um, the patient had recurrent uh, instability, so symptoms of instability. So if you have to repair all those patients uh, originally, then you would have to repair 80% um, uh, for nothing. Um, so you have to treat 100 patients to get 20 out of their instability. So I, I believe we have to take care of um, uh, treating all those patients um, uh, operatively if they have only um, a superior vesicle rupture. And that is my main observation. No, one more observation of NASEF, the combined um, uh, chronic instability uh, with osteogonal defect, uh, important uh, to, um, uh, to also repair both at the same time. The question is if you have a lax ankle, so no symptoms of instability, but you have a lax ankle with an osteogonal defect, um, will you then repair also um, uh, the ligaments? Answer is probably yes, because nowadays when we can do it arthroscopically, um, we will probably discuss with the patient that the patient has a lax ankle, um, he has no complaints of the laxity, so no instability, but it is better for the healing of the osteogonal defect and the prevention of recurrence to also uh, repair the ATFL. And that summarizes my uh, observations. John. Thank you, Nick, and uh, uh, very good as always. So I can just underline a few few more things. And uh, uh, first of all, uh, what uh, Dr. Pereira mentioned about combined syndesmosis and ankle and and and, and the usual ankle uh, ligament injuries. This is probably more common than we have anticipated before, and we should really look for this. Uh, and your way of doing this was uh, not really MRI, but uh, was arthroscopy, we should remember that. Uh, 
Just one, just one comment to your excellent talk. His name was Leonard Brustrom, and not Lars Brustrom. Um, and he, we, we can see him as a pioneer of of all this work uh, with his excellent studies from the 1960s from uh, Sweden. Um, Kenneth, I really agree with you that we need to look into better and more modern ways of uh, defining return to sports. We, we uh, have improved our treatment, we have improved our, our ways of uh, diagnostic evaluation with the MRI, with the arthroscopy, uh, better understanding, etc. But uh, there are very, very few studies and none of them are really uh, very strong about how we judge and how we evaluate return to sports. And this is uh, maybe Dr. Kanata, you are on the on the on the committee. Something that the committee might uh, uh, might do even more in future. Uh, the third thing I I, I mentioned and uh, I noticed that uh, uh, three of the uh, of the speakers are talking about ankle micro instability, and I think that in future we need to. Uh, define what we really mean by ankle micro-instability. If it's different from uh, uh, the classic ankle instability, or if we always need to have deltoid ligament injury when we are talking about ankle micro-instability. And then, of course, yes, uh, as Nasef said, we should treat the osteochondral lesion in, uh, and the ligaments at the same uh, in the same session. Uh, okay, I can turn I can turn it to turn the word back to uh, uh, Gianluigi and uh, Daniel. And we have several questions in the question and answer column. And we have fifteen minutes left. So uh, if you would take the lead on the questions, we can we can discuss the answers as well. I will I will stop now. Thank you, Jan. I think. Uh, Daniel, you can start uh, with, uh, with, there are several questions, uh, uh, and uh, one is from Arthur Olsen. What about the Watson-Jones surgery? Is involved the surgery. What do you think? Uh, I, 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 I can discuss this if you, if you like. The Watson-Jones uh, procedure was originally de described in the 1950s, and uh, there are very few publications on it, and uh, he actually, uh, he used the Peronus longus tendon and not the Peronus brevis tendon. Mm -hmm. And so that's more unsecure because the Peronus uh, longus tendon has uh, uh, a more dynamic insertion in, in, in the foot. Uh, it's a diving under, under the foot. And uh, this procedure has never really gained any major popularity in, in literature as... as uh, uh, as a salvage procedure, if you compare with, uh, for instance, uh, Evans' procedure, and more recently, after the publication in 1969 of by Christman and Snook and uh, and the Christman Snook procedure, I think that this is probably what the question is all about. Uh, and uh, uh, I myself, I have uh, uh, done uh, modified Christman Snook or or uh, without splitting the peroneus brevis tendon. Uh, several times, and uh, and I can tell you it uh, it works beautifully. 
Thank you, Jon. Uh, now we have uh, in the panel uh, Pietro Spenacchio and uh, Stefan Gior. Do you have uh, questions? Sorry, I, can put, I can put my camera on because uh, the animator will close it. So that's why we have a foot instead of me. We know you're alone. I think for the discussion, um, it's it's nice to talk uh, about things that were mentioned. And 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 as Jonas Nick also said, I think the micro instability pops up a lot. And I think we see the micro instability pop up more and more and more. So I think that will be an interesting discussion for the coming years because there are still things we do not know. And as some of the speakers said, which I find interesting, is because we do more arthroscopically now, we see more details. So we're more aware of problems we really weren't aware of when we did most of the things still open. So I think it's interesting to have a discussion on that topic now uh, with this faculty here. Uh, and my personal feel about this is that we use the wrong term because as I also noticed uh, from the reaction of Nick, the term micro, it, it triggers a little bit. Like it's, it's not really there, we cannot see it, it's not there. But in some of the examples I saw, uh, also from Jordi, there is a real instability. So are we using the same wrong term or are we framing it wrong or what are we looking at? Um, so I, I think that's an interesting part to discuss. Uh, Jordi, can you say something uh, on this? Yeah, yeah. I, I know that, that this is um, um, a hot topic nowadays is uh, about the micro-stability concept, if it exists or doesn't exist. I think that with this uh, biomechanical study that we did in London, we can confirm that this is ex this exists. Uh, the question is, uh, I know that there are some people that they are not uh, ankle microstability followers. Uh, they will never believe in this concept. Uh, here, the question is, as, as, as Nick said, is if we have to treat all the patients with uh, microstability. I always have the same question for myself, and I, and I, I don't have the answer. The, the, the reality is that if the patient uh, uh, explains symptoms, it is a good idea to treat uh, this ligament injury. Uh, something similar happens with the deltoid, with a rotational instability. Patients that they have the open book injury in the past, I just treat when they have medial symptoms but I never treat when they have no symptoms. But what happened? The, the, the problem was that after many years, some of the patients back to the consultation for median symptoms. So then I decide to treat all the patients, even if they have no symptoms in the medial side. And uh, maybe we have to do the same in some cases of microinstability. Even if they have no symptoms, maybe, maybe some patients needs a surgery just to avoid future problems as Nasef explained before. Uh, for okay. example, uh, I will be really aggressive with young and really active patients. So, I mean, I have a patient with 16, 17, 18 years old that practices sports every day, uh, high level, and they have uh, an ankle sprain, they have no complaints, but Every year they have one, maybe two ankle sprains, but not, not other symptoms. In these cases, I will propose a surgery. What Nick said was interesting. And Nick said that that uh, he called the ATFL the um, ACL of the ACL. ankle. Yeah. 
Yeah. And looking at the ACL, we see more and more going for prevention and uh, physical therapists. Well, I feel that in this kind of cases, we might ignore that a little bit. I got a feeling that regular patients do not get the right physical therapy. And even if we discuss about if a diagnosis exists, yes or no, are we treating them correctly conservatively? conservatively? And should we pay more attention to that, to, to create guidelines on that field yeah. or even on prevention? Any, any comments on that, somebody? Yeah, can, can I make a comment on that? Uh, uh, I think what is important is that you have to distinguish between laxity and instability. Laxity is a sign, so you it, it might be rotational uh, in the lab, uh, like Jordi is saying, that you can uh, see a rotational laxity. It's not instability, because instability is a symptom. It's a patient who suffers from recurrent sprains, that's instability. So I think it's really important to distinguish those two and not confuse laxity with instability because there is millions of people with lax ankles. Um, almost every soccer player has a lax ankle and they don't have any complaints of instability because like you say, Daniel, they are trained very well. So the physiotherapy, um, is really important to for functional instability. And for me, the micro instability is more a micro laxity and the patient has a functional component to it, which can be treated with physiotherapy. And, and these patients who we cannot uh, make a diagnosis only by arthroscopy, so we cannot make a diagnosis with MRI, we cannot make a diagnosis with our laxity testing. Um, we have to be very careful by giving them a surgery uh, to repair a ligament that we see has been ruptured. Um, uh, uh, um, because then we do a lot of um, uh, unnecessary surgeries. Um, so I think we have to be, it, it's good that, uh, that Jordi is doing the, the, the research in this, uh, but I, I, I would warn that we all are now going to, um, to repair those ligaments because the chance that you will induce a, a, a plantar flexion limitation when you uh, repair a ligament that is not too long, you will make it too short and you will induce a plantar flexion limitation. And, and, and maybe if you're a very good surgeon and you have a lot of experience, you will do well. But um, I would caution for every one of us to start doing these procedures without having a proper diagnosis. So Jordi, continue with your uh, research, but maybe we should wait till you have a, a better diagnosis, uh, which I think should not be called micro-instability. Um, but functional instability with um, uh, um, uh, macroscopic uh, damage to the ligament or uh, absence of the superior vesicle. Daniel, I, I think a, you make, Daniel, if I could say something, I think you make a brilliant point about um, micro instability and how it triggers. It, it suggests that the instability is is micro. What we're really talking about is sub falling over instability so it's not to say that the laxity may not be significant it, it, it's just a rotational component which is difficult to assess and it's that kinematic uncoupling that leads to the posterior impingement patient who just has a posterior arthroscopy 
but has got residual micro instability of their ATFL or, or superior bundle of the ATFL that's allowing the ankle to rotate around. And so they may not be falling, but they are symptomatic. Yes, I just want to, to talk about a work that I did and that I published in the OTSR uh, about uh, another kind of patients uh, that are, in my, my point of view, micro instability. And if you look to the facts, we did since 10 years some surgery to patients with anterolateral pain, uh, ankle sprain uh, history, and without any uh, laxity. And we call that anterolateral impeachment. And if you look to the first uh, uh, description of that by Ferkel, you can see that he was talking about an ATFL that has uh, difficulty to, to, to heal. And uh, that causes uh, irritation and stimulation of, uh, of, uh, and cause hypertrophic tissue. And we all know that if we treat those patients uh, with only shaving of the anterolateral uh, gutter, we don't have a good result. And, uh, and, uh, and also what is very interest, interesting to notice when you saw all the, the papers that have been written, is that main, the, there is no uh, uh, picture, arthroscopic picture of the ATFL in, uh, you cannot find uh, an image in those articles that has been published since 10 years of an ATFL uh, on those papers. That means that the people that treated those patients didn't see the ATFL. And I think uh, that probably in those patients is a key point. I, I'm not sure, I don't know if, if it is, a, um, uh, a micro instability. What I know is that the patient anterolateral impeachment often the patient have a lesion, a ligament lesion, and they have they, are, they have pain at this point of the of the of the joint. So that's why I think that there is a, a, a reason to treat them and maybe to to uh, suture them probably. Yeah, maybe here the problem is the name. Maybe we have to name this problem as, I don't know, but maybe micro instability is not the, the best name for this problem. Uh, maybe we have to modify the name. I don't know. I, I, I remember when I described the micro instability concept, I never talk about micro instability. I said ocul ankle instability. Yes. So, I'm sorry, but I wanted to point another point also that uh, of Kenneth, because Kenneth was talking about a work that we did in France about anatomical reconstruction under arthroscopy. Mm -hmm. And this is, uh, I wanted to point what you were saying, Kenneth, because this is a very, very big problem, is that uh, when we are talking about arthroscopy, uh, we don't know what we are doing. And for me, for example, I think that you, the technique that you are doing is a percutaneous technique. It's not an arthroscopic technique because you are you are passing through the the, the skin uh, and you are not dissecting the, the ligament. And if you the the paper that you were mentioned was the, a paper done by the French Society of Arthroscopy, and half of the patient has been treated with a, a percutaneous technique for making the calcaneal tunnel. And if you are making the calcaneal tunnel for anatomical reconstruction percutaneously, you will have the, the uh, uh, damage of the sural nerve at one moment. This is, 
always uh, the, the, you, you don't have the choice. So this is the, there is a, a difference between uh, all arthroscopic technique that leads, and you can see the publication that I did in the KSCR around four percent or five percent of nerve injury, and the, the 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 work that we did with the French Society of Arthroscopy that includes patient that has been treated with a, per, a calcaneal tunnel done percutaneously. <laughs> Yeah, Stefan, I appreciate that comment, and I saw your comment in the chat as well. And I apologize if I didn't make that clear. What I was what I was illustrating there from your work was the percutaneous technique, not the arthroscopic technique. And and you made a very important distinction, and that is that with percutaneous reconstruction, you can reconstruct both ligaments with an arthroscopic repair. You can't repair the the CFL, at least not well. So I appreciate your your make you're making that distinction. Uh, I, I have one follow up on Daniel's comment. This has been a fantastic discussion, and I completely agree that that we should um, come up with a vernacular for the the concept of microinstability um, that that kind of works as we define things. The other point I wanted to make, what Daniel said, was that there's this trend to you know where ACL is trending toward rehabilitation and not surgery. I think in ankle ligament repair, we're trending toward repairing it after acute injuries and being more aggressive for uh, a more subtle instability. And I think that's appropriate. Uh, Nick made an important point that we can't go too far overboard because there are potential complications that we don't want to expose our patients to. But I, I think the constraint is in is in rehab, not, not just how we define it, but if I have an athlete with, an, with a high-grade acute ankle ligament injury, I know they're going to be playing in six weeks. Now, they may end up being chronically unstable and need surgery, and maybe they're at risk of having other injuries. But right now, with, with current repair techniques, it's a three to four month recovery process. So I, I think where we should go as a group, and I, and I like uh, Jan's idea of incorporating this into the, the research infrastructure of the Issacos LAF, maybe in co collaboration with ESCA, with uh, EFAS, um, in, in utilizing our current techniques to accelerate rehabilitation. We should be able to do it. You know, we should be able to be more aggressive with a reconstructed ligament than we are with one that we're expecting anatomy to heal, especially when we're not making big incisions. So I, I think that, that that will really be a paradigm shift in, in how we manage these injuries and, and allow us to select appropriate uh, patients for early surgery um, and rehabilitate them so they're they're not out for longer than they would be if we treated non operatively. Just just a thought. I see in the chat that uh, Helene Simpson uh, is uh, giving comments uh, about uh, the role of physical therapist, and uh, I think for the next time we should also include uh, uh, because that's re that's really an important point which we're missing. Uh, I don't think we have much time left for discussion. I think there's one. Interesting question still in the um, in the questions, which could be interesting to talk about for a little while. Uh, and Kenneth just flecked it that he wants to answer it live. So go ahead. I'm <laughs> sorry question, about that. I, I, thought, right. I thought that was going to let me type a response. I didn't mean to disrupt. No, 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 no. no. I, I think that's a good question to talk live. So when do you, do you aim for lateral ligament complex reconstruction versus repair? I think that's an interesting topic. To yeah, I thought it was a, a great question. For, for me, it's mainly about tissue quality. If they have enough native collagen-filled ligament tissue, I'm going to do a repair, potentially with augmentation. If the tissue quality is poor or if they have that Ehlers-Danlos spectrum laxity, then I'll do a reconstruction because I need a, additional tissue. With revisions, I, I pretty much always do a reconstruction. 
Um, that that's my approach. And this, yeah. There is Maybe another just... question on uh, uh, how you assess uh, on field on the field uh, an acute injury. Can uh, or uh, your do you have a, a very quick answer to, to assessing an on field injury? You, you know, if you get if you get to it before there's a lot of swelling, the drawer test and the Taylor tilt test can be really effective. Um, what we try to rule out on the field is perineal tendon subluxation and fracture. And if they don't have that, um, even with laxity, we can get them back if they're able to go. Uh, if there's concern for fracture, we have to pull them out for an X-ray. And if there's concern for perineal tendon subluxation, they're done. So that that's kind of my my exam in a nutshell. I think this is an interesting also to to discuss because uh, as Anthony said, a lot of injuries are easily missed, and we know in our first aid departments, everybody still uses delta ankle rules to rule out uh, fractures, and then it's done. If it's no fracture, it's done. There's no conclusion afterwards. They send home. Um, so I think there's also a role for us as foot and ankle surgeons to to educate first aid department to make newer and better guidelines in which we do not miss syndesmotic injuries or combined injuries. Uh, Great. I, I think uh, uh, we could go on uh, a, a lot of time, but uh, uh, time we are running, running out of time. There are uh, a lot of questions, but uh, I appreciate uh, the answers you gave and uh, I hope this will satisfy the audience. I we thank you all for your great talks and we thank the audience. Daniel, do you have anything else to add? No, I would like to thank everybody because I really enjoyed this webinar and I think it was a great webinar. So everybody, thank you very much for your input. So uh, we thank you all. Uh, I think this webinar will be on the ISACOS website and we, you all will be able to see it again. And I thank you all again for your great, uh, for the great information you gave to the audience. Thank you.